I think many of us are desensitized to like just how um, abhorrent, evil, unjust mm-hmm. um, the act of abortion is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partly that's because we don't have a full enough appreciation for the goodness of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we have a, a profound enough respect for you know, the dignity of life properly understood. I mean, I, I, there are philosophical arguments you can make. I, I think the strongest argument uh, anyone can make is that we're all made in the image and likeness of God, right? And so I think that theological um, argument, and if you recognize that every human being um, is made in God's very image and likeness, then the act of killing another human being um, without justification, right? Sometimes it's going to be necessary war, it's going to be necessary self-defense, et cetera, et cetera. But without, you know, killing another innocent human being, um, it should be something that's really horrific. And I think we've been grossly desensitized to it. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. It is starting to not only be fall, but feel like fall, and we are continuing to truck along with fantastic episodes for you guys. It's like 80 degrees outside. I, well, what are you talking I don't know. About? It was raining. I don't know. It's <laughs> whatever. It's, it's DC. Any time that's not 100 degrees, and I literally want to die when I walk outside, is fall. Uh, today we had on one of the rare returning guests on Moment of Truth. I suspect this will start to be less and less the case as we eventually exhaust the p- limited pool of people that we actually like in Washington D.C. And but for now, it's an honor. back on. Yes, uh, uh, we had on today Ryan T. Anderson, who's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, to talk all things social conservatism, but more concretely about his uh, takes. Uh, now, I, I suppose they're less hot because it's been a few weeks since since the Dobbs decision came down, but um, still pleasantly warm takes about uh, the Dobbs decision and also um, some real kind of deep dives into what the incentives, the sociology, the psychology, the conservative movement, the pro-life movement and the Republican Party are on this issue. Uh, Those are three separate things with three separate, very important incentive structures. Uh, We also got some much needed uh, advice uh, or actually updates on a uh, dog named cow and a cow named frog. I will not explain. You have to wait till the <laughs> you end. You have to listen literally straight to the end. <laughs> you have to. Um, yeah, it's it's always delightful. I, I I thought we were gonna wrap, and then we got into the farm stuff. I was like, this stuff's gold. You have to keep it. Yeah. It's always excellent. Um, Ryan's bio is is well known to all, but uh, he's a PhD and the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's the co-author of five books, including the just released Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. His research has been cited by two U.S. Supreme Court justices, Samuel Alito and Justice Clarence Thomas, the only good ones. Uh, and he received, <laughs> <laughs> okay. he, he received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton, uh, graduated Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude. He got his doctoral degree in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. His dissertation was titled Neither Liberal Nor Libertarian, A Natural Law Approach to Social Justice and Economic Rights. He's appeared all over the place in every news outlet and publication. Uh, he is the JP2 Teaching Fellow in the Social Thought at the University of Dallas, a member of the James Madison Society at Princeton, a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, as well as the founding editor of Public Discourse, the online journal the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, for nine years, he was the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He has served as an adjunct professor of philosophy and political science at Christendom College, a visiting fellow at the Veritas Center at Franciscan University, and as the assistant editor of 
first things, follow him on Twitter for many farm updates at Ryan T. And uh, Nick was having uh, barn envy all weekend. About, yeah, it's true. Uh, it, you can see that and much more on his Twitter. I think his and barn is bigger than my house. Entirely possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can follow uh, everything else that he's doing at the Ethics and Public Policy Center's website at eppc.org. We highly recommend that you do so. And we'll go now to Ryan T. Anderson. Ryan, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me again. Uh, you are one of the, the the select few people who has come back for a second taping. So thank you. This time, unfortunately, we weren't able to make the logistics work to come out to your neck of the woods. So you had to come to our much less interesting <laughs> neck of the woods. Um, uh, I want to talk later about some of the various projects you've been doing on your farm. But uh, first, uh, I think the the 10,000 foot elephant in the room is, uh, especially as it relates to your work, is what's happened vis-a-vis -vis the abortion issue in mm -hmm. our country in the last six months uh, to a year. Uh, t tell us the tale. What, what, what have you made of everything that's that's gone down in the last six months? And uh, have you been vindicated? Have you been proven correct? Have your takes <laughs> aged poorly? Um, t tell us tell us about it. Sure. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I have um, any takes um, on the past six months that could be either falsified or uh, vindicated. Um, I think my basic um, evaluation of the past six months is that Unfortunately, we have one political party that is fundamentally committed to a fundamental form of injustice um, and that they will do, um, you know, more or less anything to try to protect that form of injustice. Um, I think it's highly likely that the leak inside of the Supreme Court came from one of the left leaning pro abort clerks. Um, you know, this wasn't some like, you know, 40 chess, you know, move of trying to prevent, you know, one of the conservatives from jumping off of the Alito opinion. Uh, because as we later saw in the political reporting, like there were there weren't any changes from what was it a February draft that was leaked or a January circulated draft that got leaked in February, whatever the timeline was, they said that you know there hadn't been any changes in the internal voting. So I think it's highly likely that the leak itself came from someone trying to protect um, the abortion license. Uh, I think what we've seen since then were lots of pregnancy centers that were firebombed, that mm -hmm. were graffitied, that were attacked in various ways. We've seen churches and other houses of worship that were attacked. Uh, we've seen an assassination attempt on a sitting Supreme Court justice. And then we saw um, DAs, the Department of Justice, do nothing about any of this. Like, you know, unwilling to even like, you know, throw a bone of like a verbal condemnation. Uh, Biden has seemed virtually unconcerned about any of this. Um, and then in terms of like the talking points, um, pro-abortion uh, activists on the left don't actually defend the position that they hold, which is unlimited abortion for any reason on the taxpayer's dime throughout all nine months of pregnancy. All of a sudden, all we're talking about is like miscarriage and ectoptic pregnancy um, and, you know, a fraction of a fraction of the reasons why uh, people might need medical care which none of the pro-life laws actually prohibit because the medical care that is um, you know, uh, needed in those situations aren't elective abortions to begin with, right? And so it's a lot of, and then the last thing I'll add, um, and then we had a lot of talk about whether or not gay marriage and contraception were gonna be the next Supreme Court rights that were taken away, right? Um, which to my mind suggests like a lot of, you know, um, kick up dust, throw stuff against the wall and see what stick. We want to talk about anything other than the actual view on abortion uh, that we hold. All right. So that's what's happened on the left side of the aisle. On the right side of the aisle, it seems like no one actually wants to defend the position that they actually hold. Um, there's just been a um, a devastating like lack of leadership, lack of um, use of the bully pulpit to celebrate the victory in Dobbs and to defend 
the fundamental right to life, to defend the goodness of life, to defend. I mean, even if all you can do is say it was constitutionally correctly decided, I mean, that, that's you know thin gruel, but it's at least it's something. Um, but even more importantly, you can say it, and it's the first step towards a human rights movement, a social justice movement, like however you want to phrase it. Um, and it's been deafening, uh, the silence, particularly from elected officials who have just um, been disinclined to speak on this, which has allowed, to my mind, the left uh, largely to demagogue and to scaremonger uh, on what the consequences of various pro-life laws would be. So on the uh, opinion itself, I think we've asked every guest that we've had on about the this issue, this question, a scale of one to 10 of, let's take, you know, one in 10 still being reasonably possible possibilities where did the opinion rank for you in terms sure. of where you would have liked it? I mean, if, if we're within the realm of reasonably possible, given the current nine members of the court and given kind of like the sociology of um, uh, the American conservative legal movement, I think this was a 10, right? I mean, like I would have loved it if the Robbie George, John Finnis amicus brief became the majority <laughs> opinion. Um, but as far as we know, I mean, like no one, uh, you know, even the Thomas concurrence, you know, Thomas used his concurrence to go after substantive due process rights rather than using his concurrence to embrace the Robbie George, John Finnis argument on uh, 14th Amendment personhood. So I think within the realm of like reasonably plausible, um, this was, you know, everything we could have hoped for. Mm -hmm. um, I do take Hadley Arcus's point that um, there could have been, you know, more that was said in the court's own voice um, about what abortion is. Um, but As I opposed also, to citations. Yeah, I mean, it, it was more uh, if you if you look at how Alito frames this, it's more of, you know, the state says this, the people who are you know objecting to the state law say this. And then our position is that the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution does not protect a license to abortion. Mm -hmm. He's also, I think, very uh, careful in how he phrases it not to rule out the 14th Amendment personhood. I think Kavanaugh's concurrence very clearly is, mm. indicates that he wants to rule that out. He wants to say that the Constitution is neutral on abortion. The Constitution doesn't take sides on the abortion debate. Kavanaugh's concurrence, if I remember correctly, is only signed by Kavanaugh. No mm. one joins on to that concurrence. Um, so again, I don't know, um, you know, if I had to guess, I would think maybe Justice Thomas and Justice Alito have some sympathy for the 14th Amendment personhood opinion um, maybe Gorsuch, you know, it's, I think it's clear that Kavanaugh does not. Mm -hmm. I think it's clear that Chief Justice uh, does not. <laughs> I don't know where uh, Justice Barrett would come down on it. Um, I think so anyway. So, I mean, to answer your direct question, uh, I think the opinion itself is really good for a variety of reasons, um, both because it just um, states the truth about uh, the past 50 years entirely being made from whole cloth. Mm -hmm. That there's nothing in the actual constitutional text, the history of the Constitution, the logic of the Constitution, the tradition of American constitutionalism that would justify a right to privacy understood as a right to engage in a commercial transaction where you kill another human being. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's just think about how absurd the row logic was. That then gets transformed into Casey, where they say they uphold the central holding of Roe. Um, but they don't do it because it was rightly decided. They do it on stare decisis grounds. And now all of a sudden it's a liberty interest mm -hmm. uh, that's being used. And again, like what sort of liberty interests uh, protect a right to engage in an action that mm -hmm. kills another human being, right? It's, it's a weird form of liberty um, given that all of our liberties have limits. And normally one of those limits is you can't kill innocent, you know, third parties. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so it's, it, it, it's good in explaining why Roe and Casey were wrongly decided, why the Constitution rightly understood doesn't have anything in it that could remotely uh, support a right to abortion. And then it's also good in explaining why the stare decisis considerations, because if you're a judge, stare decisis is a consideration. You do want to say that, you know, if a court has previously addressed an issue, you don't just want to like throw it um, uh, by the wayside, you know, kind of, you know, uh, without any consideration. But he goes through very methodically and says, like, you know, I forget now if it was four or five different factors that Alito used to explain why this, you know, actually shouldn't be uh, deferred to. You know, it was wrongly decided. It was egregiously wrongly decided. It's about an important issue. It's not a trivial issue. The American people have never decided it. It's a contentious. It, you know, he goes through one by one by one explaining why um, neither the Roe nor Casey opinion deserves uh, any form of kind of like sorry decisis deference. Um, all that said, um, all that it has now done is allowed several states to have their pro-life laws go into effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but the majority of Americans live in jurisdictions where abortion is still legal. Yeah. And that means the majority of unborn babies live in jurisdictions where they can be lawfully killed. Right? And that's why there's a lot more work uh, to be done. So you brought up the uh, the demagoguing in the in the wake of the opinion. And I think that's something really important to touch on. As I kind of see these, you know, threads moving throughout the media and online, um, it's like people don't even know what pregnancy is or like the basics of, you know, the female reproductive <laughs> system. Like they, they're, that's like the real misinformation that that's going on. So walk us through a, a lot of the lies that they're telling about abortion access, who's uh, getting abortions, why. Etc. Sure. I mean, I, I would say the biggest lie that has been told is that um, the pro-life laws would criminalize either care in the case of a miscarriage or care in the case of um, something like an apoptotic pregnancy. Apoptotic pregnancy is where a pregnancy, um, the uh, unborn child doesn't implant in the uterus. It implants somewhere outside of the uterus. Um, most frequently, it implants in the fallopian tube. Um, that pregnancy, uh, that child um, will not continue living. Um, that, you know, it can only develop so far and then it's going to rupture the fallopian tube. Um, it's going to kill the unborn child and it threatens uh, not only the health of the mother, but also the very life of the mother. And so like every pro-life ethicist that I know of um, uh, using a form of moral reasoning known as the doctrine of double effect comes straight out of uh, Thomas Aquinas um, in his exposition of why it's okay to use lethal force in self-defense, that if you were to attack me, I can repel you. Um, going so far as to even use force that I know might prove to be lethal if it's justified in the case of an unjust aggressor attacking me, provided that my intention isn't to kill you, right? My intention is to ward you off, it's to repel you, but I can foresee that an unintended but foreseen side effect would be your death. The same logic, um, every pro-life bioethicist, moral thinker that I know of who has you know written on this question, says that you can use a form of medical care to treat the ectoptic pregnancy, to treat uh, another example, uterine cancer, where the mother, there is a medical intervention to treat the mother, where the intention is not to kill the unborn baby, right? The death of the unborn child does nothing to preserve the life of the mother, does nothing to preserve the health of the mother. Um, But what does need to happen is you might have to remove a cancerous uterus, or you might have to remove an embryo that's developing in a location that's inhospitable to life both to the embryo's life and to the mother's life, where the death of the child would be foreseen, it's not intended. Um, all of the state pro-life laws that we know of, uh, my co-author Alexander DeSanctis, 
and uh, two different scholars at the Charlotte Logier Institute, which is like the research arm of the Susan B. Anthony list. Both teams um, went through every state pro-life law that exists, and they all have explicit protection uh, for medicine, treating mothers in these sorts of situations. They explicitly state that the ban on abortion doesn't cover these sorts of procedures because these sorts of procedures aren't elective abortions. Um, so that's just like, you know, one example of um, uh, the type of, I, I would say, intentionally misleading uh, media narratives. And I think it, in particular, it's it's dangerous to do this. I mean, it's clearly being done to try to sway public opinion, right? They, they, they would rather be talking about um, uh, life of the mother exceptions, and they would want to be talking about late-term abortions or, you know, even midterm 20-week abortion bans, which, you know, as far as I can tell, hugely popular with the American people. One of our political parties supports a 20-week ban. The other one of our political parties does not. Uh, they don't want to talk about that stuff. Um, but a side effect of this is that some women will actually believe, you know, if they're having a miscarriage or if they're having a toxic pregnancy, that their state law prohibits care in that situation, right? And so, so it's, it's a dangerous lie to be telling at the service of um, an unjust political movement to begin with. Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something. The second layer to this that people often bring up is that... Um, doctors are being deterred for fear of legal repercussion providing care in these circumstances. Is there any truth to that? Have you seen any? There examples? shouldn't be. Um, I mean, there have been some medical doctors who have said this. Um, and, I, and I think some of them might be acting in good faith. Some of them might be acting in bad faith. Um, but I think it's a huge um, failure on the part of the various hospitals, the various medical systems, the various lawyers at the hospitals. The laws all use the same kind of legal jargon, which is, you know, reasonable medical judgment, right? And that's the that's the technical legal language that is used in a whole host of other medical situations mm -hmm. uh, where it says, you know, uh, in a doctor's reasonable medical judgment, X, Y, and Z procedure is necessary, right? The procedure in the mm -hmm. case of ectopic pregnancy or the case of um, a, a miscarriage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so some physicians are saying, well, you know, I thought this meant that you needed to be, um, you know, actively dying before I could do something. And it doesn't say anything about like, you know, imminent death in the, you know, it says, you know, a condition that would uh, pose a significant risk to like a major bodily system or to life in a doctor's reasonable medical judgment. And then you'll fill in the blank with terms of medical care that we provided. And some medical doctors have said, well, I thought this meant that, you know, it had to be, I have to wait until it's like imminent that if I don't do something, you'll die. And like, that's not what the law actually says. And it's not what any kind of reasonable interpretation of the law would re require. It's also highly unlikely that any large scale hospital system is telling their doctors that. Right. Probably, right. I think it's, it's more likely that they haven't actually done um, the necessary education um, to prepare doctors for the day when Dobbs was going to be decided. Right. I mean, so it's all the more egregious because we had the leak. So, you know, back in the middle <clears throat> Um, end of winter, beginning of spring, 
if you now know it's highly likely that come the end of June, we're getting a Supreme Court opinion that's going to overrule Roe and Casey and that our state has this pro-life law that's going to spring into effect should Roe and Casey be gone, you might want to actually read that law and then have training sessions Mm -hmm. for your doctors. But pro-life doctors um, have been taking care of uh, pregnant mothers um, for the past 50 years Mm -hmm. during Roe. And even though there was a legal right to abortion, pro-life doctors don't perform abortions. And they have not been letting their mothers die, right? So I've, I'm friends with some of the physicians at the, um, uh, oh, geez, what is the f- the full name of APLOG? It's the American Academy of Pro-Life Obstetrician and Gynecologists, um, mm. APLOG. It's a great organization. And, you know, you go to their website and they have all these kind of like debunking of the lies that the um, left has been telling on this. But also they will tell you just from their personal experience. They are pro-life OBGYNs and you know they haven't allowed their 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 mother patients because they would say both human beings are their patients mm-hmm. right they're the doctor both for the child and for the mother and they don't see it as in competition they don't see it as a zero sum game they have a hippocratic duty to both patients sometimes all they can do is save one of those patients mm-hmm. right but they're not pitting them against each other and so they they think it's you know it's a corruption of medicine um to to allow um uh, either the lawyers or the activists, or in some cases, activist doctors themselves, to make it seem like pro-life laws uh, would prohibit good medicine. The muddying of the waters of questions of ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages leads me to get pretty concerned about what actual enforcement is going to look like in states where abortion has been banned outright. What is the ways that you guys are anticipating there's going to be trickery when it comes to actual enforcement, you know, using these exceptions as a way to create a more general license for abortion um, at the micro level of, you know, a particular doctor, a particular patient, because there will still be doctors that I'm sure have an ideological commitment to abortion and patients who want to get one. Where do you think there's going to be room for for mistakes? um, To a certain extent, like this is where I defer to actual lawyers. Mm-hmm. I mean, so for our listeners or viewers, I am not a lawyer. Right? I'm, I'm a PhD, not a JD. Yeah, which is why um, we can see you in the mirror. <laughs> um, but I mean, simply to say that there will be, um, this is not to denigrate the legal craft. Like we actually do need people to have the expertise to write laws um, so that they do allow um, for, you know, justified forms of medicine to be practiced, mm-hmm. but don't allow therefore like loopholes to be exploited, right? Because I don't think it's a loophole to say that care in the case of a cancerous uterus or care in the case of miscarriage or care in the case of ectopic pregnancies, those aren't exceptions, Mm -hmm. right? I actually think it's a a mistake when pro-lifers ourselves speak of life of the mother exceptions. Mm -hmm. Well, no, because those aren't abortions to begin with, right? Right. I I, I think it's important that you look at the, the, the train of like practical rationality, the intentionality, the objective that's being, Mm -hmm. being sought. Um, So to a certain extent, I I, I leave it to um, the lawyers on how to craft that. But I do think it's important for kind of those of us who are more in the kind of um, uh, moral philosophy and backslash like shaping of like public opinion to point out that it would be a luxury if we were in the situation in which we were just trying to prevent so-called loopholes from being exploited. Mm -hmm. We're still at a point as a pro-life movement where in many jurisdictions, we can't even get like basic uh, pro-life laws enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, pro-life laws that the vast majority of American people, you know, report to pollsters that they would support. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I would like to, you know, move from where we currently are in many jurisdictions to a situation in which we're just debating the technical question of like, which lawyer is giving us the best advice of how to craft the legislative language so that um, protections for good medicine mm-hmm. don't get exploited mm-hmm. by doctors who want to then be doing um, uh, unlawful abortions under the guise of life-saving medical mm-hmm. care. That, that would be a much better situation to inhabit than where we currently are. I think one of the most jarring things that I've noticed uh, in the wake of the ruling is just how many financial and organizational incentives there are to like to get an abortion people actively and and companies and you know governments paying for abortions um incentivizing people to get one lobbying for you know increased access um who pays for all this stuff and why well i mean so look at the end end of the day uh all these costs get passed on to consumers right Mm -hmm. so if you say like who pays for all this stuff like you and i do um, our viewers, our listeners to, if you shop at any of the companies mm. that have announced that they were going to be paying for like, you know, if you live in a pro-life state, we'll pay up to $5,000 for you to travel to California to have your abortion. Should that be banned? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and I don't even think that's a hard, because put it this way, I think abortion should be banned, right? So I think that, um, you should not be able to lawfully kill another human being in the womb. Um, therefore you should not be able to pay to send someone to a jurisdiction where it's legal to kill someone mm-hmm. in the room. Like, I, I, I don't think it should be um, a hard question of um, if we think the underlying action should be prohibited because it's unjust, then ancillary actions that are meant to kind of subsidize that or to skirt, you know, our state pro-life law, we're going to, you know, find a way of getting around. Yes, we should be finding. And look, there might be, again, not being a lawyer, I haven't thought about this. There could be like certain constitutional and my response is, then we should find a way yeah. to prohibit it that doesn't run afoul of constitutional action. But, but if we can't say that, like, a state doesn't have the authority to pass a law to prevent people from going out of state to kill people, like, that strikes me as a problem. And if the and if the end of the day, the solution really is that, like, you know, state acts can't prevent you from going out of state and, you know, killing someone in state Y, then that's a role for Congress, yeah. right? I mean, so so at, at whatever level it is, if you want to say, look, this is interstate commerce and so the states can't regulate it themselves, only Congress. Can, well, then at the very least, Congress should be able to say um, that you shouldn't be able to go out of state. Again, because we're talking about killing another human being. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's important. <clears throat> I think many of us have been desensitized to the evil of abortion, mm-hmm. right? And, and I use the word evil intentionally um, I think some of the attacks on pregnancy resource centers really highlighted the evil nature of this. Um, not only because like sometimes like actual satanic imagery was used during the attacks, but if you think about what a pregnancy resource center is, they aren't the ones doing like what I do, you know, mm-hmm. actually like making public arguments about the immorality, the injustice of <laughs> abortion. All they do is they assist women who voluntarily come to them seeking assistance to choose life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one side is saying we are pro-choice, but we're going to do everything in our power to actually make it more difficult for women to choose life by attacking the very centers dedicated to assisting women um, to choose life. I think many of us are desensitized to like just how um, abhorrent, evil, unjust mm-hmm. um, the act of abortion is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partly that's because we don't have a full enough appreciation for the goodness of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we have a, a profound enough respect for 
you know, the dignity of life properly understood. I mean, I, I, there are philosophical arguments you can make. I, I think the strongest argument uh, anyone can make is that we're all made in the image and likeness of God, right? And so I think that theological um, argument, and if you recognize that every human being um, is made in God's very image and likeness, then the act of killing another human being um, without justification, right? Sometimes it's going to be necessary war, it's going to be necessary self-defense, et cetera, et cetera. But without, you know, killing another innocent human being, um, it should be something that's really horrific. And I think we've been grossly desensitized to it. Well, and this just exposes to how we're not, conservatives generally are not willing to play by the same rules. Like the, the, the very, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, you know, you remember all these, uh, we talked with Congressman Dan Bishop about all his, like, the transgender bathroom bill, right? And how these companies would come in and they would say, cool, we're just going to boycott your entire state. You know, we're not going to send any products to your state or whatever. Why don't we do the the same thing from right. the other side, right? Okay, General Mills, you're going to pay for your, you know, all your employees to, to, you know, go to another state to have an abortion. Cool. Your cereal can't get sold in schools anymore. Yeah, it can't get sold in schools anymore. State's not paying for I it. I think Ron DeSantis has, you know, shown some leadership on that. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think, look, it would be better if we lived in a world in which we did not have to politicize all of our consumer choices and in which yeah. we did not. But given that that's not the world we're living in, one side can't say that, you know, detente or one side can't say you know we're not going to engage in that yeah. while the other side is and mm -hmm. so it may very well be that the way that you arrive at a detente is precisely by both yeah. sides saying well there's mutually assured destruction if you play this yeah. game we play it and then both sides say well wouldn't it actually be better for all of us yeah. if we stop doing this in fact that's the only way historically speaking that detentes are arrived at there is no historical analog but you I can't have a one-sided <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that's yeah. what i don't think and so like I would rather not have to uh, be in a situation in which um, conservatives, Republicans, whatever, um, are engaged in, you know, that form of kind of like an economic policy where you're like picking winners and losers in that precise sense of like, all right, we're changing suppliers at our public schools because this supplier has politics that we disagree with. Mm -hmm. But when it's a, one, when it's about something like this. I mean, this is a life and death issue. It's different than like what should the marginal tax rate be and like they're lobbying for a free trade policy or for a tax reduction that we don't like, whatever. Um, but then two, if, if the other side's doing it so that when Mike Pence signs Indiana's RIFRA into law, Indiana mm -hmm. gets boycotted when I forget who the governor was at the time in North Carolina signs HB2 into law, mm -hmm. North Carolina gets boycotted. There needs to be some neutralization there so then no more state gets boycotted. Yeah, I, th I think California... <laughs> Government employees still to this day cannot Can't travel. Yeah, they, to North they, they cannot expense yeah. travel to Texas, North Carolina, and a bunch of other states. Yeah. Which, like to this day, like that's the biggest. The government of California is, I believe, the second largest employer in the country after the federal government. Maybe the third after Walmart. Like that, it's that large, and so it's it's a huge thing. I'm I'm curious. And, and, and let me just add yeah. one thing there. And and what it could be is that you get. Um, you know, maybe it's through, um, uh, uh, you know, I was going to say RAGA, but RAGA is the um, Attorney General Association. But, you know, you, you find out what the functional equivalent is for, you know, the governorship or for um, uh, uh, state houses. And you actually say, right, it's not just going to be like the three states that are currently on um, that list for California, mm -hmm. but it's going to be 
all states that are governed right now by Republicans having like a solidarity mm -hmm. where there's, you mm -hmm. know, you, you form like a, um, you know, it, it would almost be like an alliance, mm -hmm. but it's now domestic rather mm -hmm. than foreign relations wise. Mm -hmm. And you say, hey, if one of our states get boycotted, all of our states yeah. respond. Yeah. And it's, I, I think we are, unfortunately, because it would be better if we didn't live in this world, but this is the world we live in. We're going to have to be thinking tactically along those lines. Well, and that's the case for doing something like this is you can't hardly spend a dollar in this economy without supporting literal baby murder. Like, <laughs> right. like name name a Fortune 500 company whose money in some way is not going to this stuff. I mean, you even look at uh, supporting things like um, professional sports. Nate Hockman just had this piece in NNR about how many MLB teams are actively paying for sex changes, right? Yeah. Um I mean, it's it's you, you can't pick, you know, a, a, a school lunch provider that's not local, that's not, again, actively paying for baby murder. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to utilize power somehow to get out of that scenario. And that's where, um, oh, what is his name? Uh, is it Peter Rex? He had a great op ed in Newsweek. Yeah. Um, saying, yeah, you know, it's his company. He was going to I think it was like a five thousand dollar stipend for for adoption. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I forget, uh, is it real estate? I forget exact what line of work Peter's in. But yeah. like, I mean, so I don't know how I would actually then, you know, patronize his companies because, you know, I don't invest in real estate or whatever. But I mean, I think finding uh, situations like that where you do see um, companies doing the right thing and then you can go out of your way. Mm. Um, I mean, and you could also do that. I mean, I, I think of this sometimes with um, like food purchases, like, yeah. yes, it is cheaper to shop at Costco. And yes, we do shop at Costco. But yes, like we buy from those farm stands on the side of the road as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of it is because like it's actually better quality. Some of it is like we actually want to support the local farms in our community yeah. and we're willing to pay a slightly higher margin. Mm -hmm. We're fortunate that we can pay and you know, afford to pay that slightly higher margin. So, I, you know, I, I don't want it to make it seem like, you know, if you're shopping at Walmart or Costco, you're doing something wrong. Because like for many people, like that's the only way they can afford to get uh, mm -hmm. fresh produce. We're fortunate that we can shop at some of those farm stands and we do it partly because it tastes better, but partly because we want to support the local farmers in our community. And um, I think something similar can be brought to bear when we're thinking about who is subsidizing abortion and who's not, who's mm -hmm. subsidizing adoption. I want to spend some time talking about the, the sociology and psychology of the pro-life movement, the conservative movement and the Republican Party, which are three separate things. Um, Knowing full well that, that you can't and probably shouldn't name names um, or organizations, I'm curious, what has been the kind of temperature check shock that's been felt across those institutions from your vantage point now that we're the dog that caught the car right. on the thing that we've said that we've wanted for the past 30 years? What, How are institutions adjusting and 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 how do the people inside those institutions actually feel and think about this this new reality we live in? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, lots to say there. With um, you know, again, and I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist, so you've asked me to do this <laughs> yeah. sociology and psychology yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, I would say one is that universally, everyone I've spoken with, with has been a sense of deep elation that you know they they weren't just doing this for a paycheck. Like you know, people working in the pro life movement actually so. Which institution are we talking about? So let yeah. me start with the pro-life movement. Um, they've been deeply um, uh, um, just, you know, filled with, you know, gratitude. Like this is what they had been working for, right? The the proximate goal was overturning Roe. Ultimate goal is protecting all the 
babies and their mothers. But the first necessary step here um, to pass meaningfully protective laws in jurisdictions was getting rid of Roe and Casey. And so there's been a deep sense of um, just satisfaction, gratitude, happiness, joy, because that's what they were working on in the pro-life movement. Second thing I would say is there's been a deep sense of frustration uh, in the pro-life movement that many of the political leaders have not been as outspoken. Um, uh, there was an op-ed recently that I read, if I remember correctly, it was from Charlie Camosi saying that, you know, civil society leaders can only do so much if our political leaders who have the bully pulpit, who have access to major national media, who go on the talk shows are unwilling to speak out in defense of life or unwilling to combat the lies that the media is telling about these pro-life laws. Um, there's only so much that, you know, um, the president of SBA list or the president of American United for Life or that Lila Rose at Live Action can do, um, given that, you know, those three individuals, those three institutions don't have nearly the reach um, of a Mitch McConnell, right? And, and, and so, like, you know, a, a frustration that there hasn't been more done politically to shape public opinion, right? I mean, this is where I think sometimes people learn the wrong lesson from um, the phrase that uh, uh, politics is downstream from culture. Like, I think it's a bad imagery because it makes it seem like it's unidirectional. Um, politics shapes our culture just as much as our culture shapes politics. And the law is a teacher and congressional hearings can be teachers. And what politicians say and do shapes public opinion. They're not just, it's not just that the politicians are shaped by public opinion, they shape public opinion. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, as much as I uh, appreciate Andrew Breitbart and things that he has, you know, things that he did in his life, um, I think that particular quote, and it's also my understanding is that that wasn't the fullness of what he was no. saying and that the quote's taken out of context, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a criticism of him, but it's people have learned the wrong lesson. Yeah. Uh, it's it's usually just an excuse to do nothing. nothing. <laughs> that's, yes. that's essentially the way it's been utilized. But then the other other thing I will say, because you, know, you asked about the sociology and psychology here, is that um, there's going to be an interesting... Um, Many people who have worked in the pro-life movement and the conservative movement more broadly in D.C. have known for decades which politicians campaign at home saying they're pro-life, saying they're going to vote to appoint originalist justices to overturn Roe. And then as soon as they get to D.C., they want to do nothing to advance the pro-life ball. They tell leadership, don't bring a 20-week bill, don't bring a 15-week bill, don't bring a heartbeat bill, don't bring anything to the floor, don't force me to vote on this, right? All of a sudden, they no longer have the easy talking point of, mm -hmm. I'm going to vote to confirm justices to overturn Roe and Casey. Now the question is like, what are you actually going to do? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you as a lawmaker, a member of a legislative body, going to protect babies, going to protect mothers, going to um, uh, serve those in need? Yeah. Uh, and so I think socio so sociologically, where you know, some of us in DC have known you know, who's actually a pro-life advocate and who just mouths the platitudes. Mm -hmm. That's going to be yeah. better known to the general public. And the last thing I'll say is that um, sociologically, there are internal disagreements about how much incrementalism and how much um, abolitionism. Mm -hmm. Everyone agrees, you know, with the broad brushstroke of incrementalism at the service of abolition, mm -hmm. right? But then once you try to titrate that, and once you say in you know particular circumstances, you know should. Um, <clears throat> Should right now, um, congressional pro-life congressional um, Republicans be pushing for a twenty-week bill, a fifteen-week bill, or a six-week bill, or a conception bill? 
right? That's where you'll see that there's some disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, you can contrast any of those things with the Democrats, mm-hmm. and it makes for you know an illuminating contrast. Public opinion, though, and this is where you get the prudential disagreements. Public opinion is more strongly with us on the 20 weeks, a little bit less strongly with us when the 15 weeks. There's a decent drop off when you get down to six weeks, and then you know it's a more substantial drop down as you get to conception. And so, so there are, and that's at the national level, right? Mm-hmm. Different states have different, mm-hmm. and so there are kind of questions of tactics of, um, you know, how fast, how soon have we laid the groundwork? What are we doing to shape public opinion? And it's just really hard. I would say for kind of pro-life civic leaders to be doing this without the political um, buy-in. And it's a cop out to say, this is just a state issue, right? which is what many of the federal officials, mm-hmm. right? Many of the people in this city are doing right now. That's their talking point is that Dobbs sent it back to the states. Mm-hmm. It's not what Dobbs says, right? Sends it back to the democratic branches of government, the legislative branches mm-hmm. of government. And, um, the corollary of the Robbie George, John Finnis argument about 14th Amendment personhood um, that the justices could have adopted is also that legislators and executive branch can adopt this. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they, they, they take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. Section 5 of the 14th Amendment explicitly says Congress has been granted new powers to enforce the protections that Section 1 actually articulates. Uh, so that's, you, know, you could use that as a justification for the laws. You could use interstate commerce justification. There's a variety of hooks if you need a hook for why uh, the federal government has an interest in, in protecting life. So in talking about public opinion, I think you've hit on something very interesting. I A lot of the, I think, you know, response from, from people on the left has been, oh, you know, 55% of people disprove or disapprove of that. Therefore, you can't do it. You know, there are a lot of people living in this kind of lunacy world where they think, you know, we live in a direct democracy. I think the flip side, though, is also true for conservatives. They say, oh, well, you know, 55 percent of people are against it. You know, we want to maintain, um, you know, we or we want to win a majority. We want to, you know, be able to have some power, not just on this issue, but on other issues. So when it comes to, you know, people who are working in this town, um, not just in the pro-life movement, but in the conservative movement more broadly, how should they be thinking about public opinion yeah. and and what, you know, the voting population thinks yeah. of pro-life laws? I mean, I think one thing that you can uh, say universally about public opinion on abortion is that almost all of the polls um, are poorly worded and that the American people don't actually know all that much. Including the poll that was put on the ballot in Kansas? That was, I think, um, worded as a ballot initiative. Yeah. It was too long. Yeah. Right? You, you need it to be simple. Yeah. You need it to be easier to understand. And unfortunately, it was written before Dobbs, mm-hmm. right? And so the context of, um, you know, when they drafted that um, uh, ballot initiative and then when it was actually put up for a vote, Dobbs had happened in between. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. So I, I think that was a, a, um, a misstep. But I don't just think it was, you know, because it was a giant paragraph and it was, you know, hard to decipher what exactly it was doing. I also think um, we didn't have any national leadership on that issue. Mm -hmm. So the left, whenever there's, and I learned this the hard way with the Indiana RIFRA, with some of the religious liberty battles after Obergefell, with some of the transgender battles. Conservatives view these things, oh, that's a state issue. The left turns whatever state battle is hottest into a national issue. 
And so they bring their national talent and their national media to whichever state battleground is, you know, happening at the moment. And then we say, oh, we'll just leave it to the local state legislators and the local state think tank to handle this. And then we see the results, right? And so it's actually important that both national groups um, and national political leaders use the bully pulpit to defend these state battles because the left's bringing in national groups, national talent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was a second part of your question, um, oh, about public opinion. I mean, I, I think the important thing here is that most of these public opinion polls show something like this. I support Roe v. Wade. I also support restrictions on abortion that are inconsistent with Roe v. Wade. Mm. Right? The American people don't really know um, what they're talking about because they don't fully understand what Roe did. Um, and I think just in general, public opinion polling shows that most people are not as ideologically coherent or as um, consistent in their viewpoints as people like us who, you know, think about this stuff a lot and, you know, are deeply kind of uh, philosophically, principally grounded, blah, blah, blah. Uh, people are a grab bag of conflicting views. Um, people's opinions are shaped by elite opinion. People's opinions are shaped by what they perceive to be the, quote, right side of history. People's opinions are shaped by what they find to be persuasive. Right. And so I, I don't think we should, you know, lick our fingers, see which way the winds are blowing based upon public opinion polling and then say enact our policy to match that. Um, we should be using all of the tools at our disposal to try to shape public opinion to be in accordance with the truth. Mm. And that also means you need um, the law. You need celebrities. You need um, intellectuals. You need grassroots activists. You need politicians. I mean, it's you need Hollywood. And you need all of the above because all of those things I mentioned shape public opinions in various ways. Mm. How are you thinking about the coalitional aspect of how the pro-life movement integrates into the conservative movement and how the conservative movement integrates into the Republican Party, i.e. a part but not the whole of right. each of those entities? Um, you know, what I'm sure many national Republican leaders are saying privately is, you guys got your win. We are paying a political price for it. Leave us alone for a little while. What, right. what would you say? And how, how are you thinking about what people whose principal concern is the life issue? How should they operate intra-coalitional politics? Yep. Um, the quote you just paraphrased um, is a recipe to lose, right? That's a recipe for defeat. Um, if you are known as the pro-life party, but you are unwilling to articulate why and to defend why, then you're allowing the other side to actually frame what it is that you stand for, mm -hmm. and they're not gonna give you very good framing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what we've seen happen um, over the past several weeks. Uh, it's why some of the uh, public opinion polls, you know, insofar as you can trust those opinion polls, because again, I think some of the people conducting the polls you know, have a vested interest in how they come out. Mm -hmm. But insofar as you have seen um, support for abortion go up, support for the pro-life cause go down, um, support for Democrats in the generic midterm election go up, support for Republicans in generic go down. Um, it's not because Republicans are talking too much about abortion. It's because they won't actually defend the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. And they're allowing the left pro-abortion uh, um, uh, activists to frame the debate and then to monopolize. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. become almost like a, um, a, a monologue. And there's not even a debate happening 
right? And so, so I think that that would be one mm-hmm. response. Second, I would say is that political parties are instrumentally valuable, right? There, there's nothing like, you know, about the party as such that demands our um, loyalty or our adherence. It's much more about like, um, what is the party going to do for the value at stake, for the moral mm-hmm. truth that's at stake? Um, and, you know, we can go through a host of issues. I mean, life's not the only uh, thing that I care about. It's Yes, it's the most important. I mean, I, I do think there's kind of a, um, a, a set of priorities uh, here. And um, there have been other uh, numerically um, discrete, you, know, you could call them interest groups or factions of political movements that have been able to punch way above their weight class um, by telling the political party, you know, if you aren't prioritizing our issues, we may not come out this election. And I think for too long, pro-lifers were taken for granted because where else were you going to go? Right. right. And well, and, uh, and that that and is facially still it makes sense because you, you've, you're you describing a monolithically uh, pro-abortion political party on one side and at worst, a, you know, a Republican party that will keep stasis. Well, so th- there is something to yeah. that. Oh, right? of course. And so how, I'm curious how you think about it. And, and so so I think there what, what you suggest is that um, you don't want to stay home because um, the people on the left are going to be worse, mm-hmm. right? As you just said, at least with the people on the right, you're going to get stasis. People on the left, you're going to, you know, um, uh, get bad justices, bad policies. Mm-hmm. Now, was it just last week? Uh, was it on Friday afternoon? They announced that the um, the VA is going to be performing abortions, even oh, though that's God. not what the statute allows for, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So, they so don't really care. See, <laughs> of course, right? And so, so you can see it, you know, at the administrative state level, at the legislative level, judicial level, um, it's going to be bad. And so here, I think it's more of a, let me help you, <laughs> help me to help you. I guess that's that. That's the uh, the phrase from the movie. There, um, I think if Republicans want to win, um, the life issue is an asset for them, mm-hmm. uh, and they have to do it. Uh, they they have to be able to speak about it in a coherent, intelligent way. They have to be able to draw the contrast between the radicalness, the extremity, the the extreme nature of the left on these issues. And then where they are, um, realizing that the bill that they might be wanting to vote on today is not yet what the three of us would ultimately be happy with. But the contrast that you can draw between a 15-week bill and abortion on demand at taxpayer expense is a pretty helpful contrast mm-hmm. that cuts in our favor. Yeah, And so, so I think like one starting point for the coalitional side of the politics is to actually help people who are campaigning see how they can speak and position themselves on various social issues in a way that are actually popular Mm -hmm. with voters because voters are actually much more um, socially conservative than they are economically libertarian. Mm -hmm. And yet all of our elected officials seem to have no problem talking um, out of a kind of club for growth um, handbook. I I just want Republican senators to fight as hard for the life issue as they do for the carried interest loophole. (laughs) (laughs) Would it be that difficult? (laughs) No. (laughs) But I mean, there's also, I mean, mean, some of this, this is why what SBA list does is so important because some of this is financial. Yeah. Right. You're going to get a campaign contribution. There's going to be some financial backing if you support the right economic policies. Will there be a financial backing if you support the right social policies? Right. And then the flip side of this, I mean, this is something that, you know, 
we've been talking about with friends for a decade now is that there are no scalps that will be taken if you go the wrong way. Right. Um, Rick Santorum, they took his scalp. Right. The left said because he was leading on social issues, we're going to go after him. Um, uh, um, Dan Lipinski, right, the, the last mm. pro-life Democrat in a pretty safe district for the Democrats. Mm. They primaried him because he was a pro-life Democrat. They took us. We don't do enough of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that can also be helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, in enforcing what are kind of the bright lines? What are the, you know, you don't cross this line if you want our support. But that means it needs to be backed up, not just, you know, what people like I do, like, you know, we have a bunch of like academics who write books. We also need the people who actually get into the trans the transactional nature of politics, right. which involves money. And this is why I think it's important um, what Marjorie has done with SBA list, because they're actually they're backing candidates and they're protecting people who do courageous things and they're opposing people uh, who do cowardly things. Um, and that's not a inappropriate function in a type of democratic polity that we have, right? That that That's actually part of doing politics, not just talking about politics. Mm -hmm. And I think too many social conservatives, we have like lots of pastors and lots of law firms and lots of scholars. And obviously like I'm one of the latter. So it's not what we need in addition to that are, you know, people who actually do like the political campaigning side of mm -hmm. things. So you've mentioned a couple times this theoretical concept of a Republican, you know, right now that would be proudly uh, and decisively campaigning on the life issue. Let's take a platonic example of, you know, some constituency, some district or state in the country that, you know, Republicans running for office, they could win. Uh, they could either lose by two points or they could win by six points. So they're in kind of a, you know, eight point swing district, um, but probably going to win. What, how would you counsel that they campaign on this issue in a way that you think is popular and effective? Yeah. All right. So, I mean, now I really don't want to commit malpractice <laughs> because, I mean, here, here I mean, I, in case, because you, you guys probably do have candidates who, yes. who will be listening. <laughs> Ryan says I am not a campaign expert. <laughs> well, be, because I do think there's there's something of an art. I'm not going to, you know, say it's a science, but um, it would really be context dependent. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so so if, if you know, if, if if J.D. Vance is running in Ohio, I would want to know a lot more about what currently kind of Ohio public opinion looks like, what his opponent has said or not said on these issues to draw the, the best contrast mm -hmm. possible. But I think it is a contrast that you have to draw. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I don't think it's just a this is what I believe about the life issue without also connecting it to what your opponent believes mm -hmm. and then highlighting, you know, this is where we currently are in the state of Ohio this is where we could be mm -hmm. also recognizing that they're running for the u.s senate right so it's not even as if they're actually dealing with you know state level law but again because um the symbolic nature of politics that even if you're not running for a seat that gives you any authority over the laws in my state because you're representing my state at co in congress i want to know where you come down on various issues mm -hmm. and i think just drawing that contrast mm -hmm. uh, can be helpful uh and then i think you want to speak in ways that are not um uh, kind of foot and mouth moments, obviously, right? Mm. So you don't want to have who was the um, Todd Aiken. Todd Aiken. You, to, you knew exactly where I was, so I don't even have to repeat his foot and mouth, but yeah. stuff like that. But but also then I think- Do you think that's part of the reason why so many Republicans are reticent to talk about this issue on the trail is that by making it a greater campaign issue, like the degrees of freedom chances that something will go wrong <laughs> increases? Um, Possibly. Yeah. I, I have not spoken with enough candidates or their um, consultants 
I think it's more the consultants aren't comfortable with this mm -hmm. because I think the consultants aren't really pro-life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think this is where personnel is policy. I think this has much more to do um, with what are the priorities and the deepest convictions of the staffers. Mm -hmm. um, this is what I saw during the marriage debate was that you had members who were solidly committed to the truth about marriage, but they were staffed by a bunch of people who secretly disagreed with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was secret. Like they weren't telling their boss that they disagreed, yeah. but you could feel them out and see actually where they stood on the issue. Um, and then that was hugely counterproductive. Yeah, um, I, I think I'm probably willing to say that every single Republican member of Congress on the Hill has a staff that are the median point of the staff is more socially liberal than the member itself. Every yeah. single one. Yep. I can't think of an example of. Yeah. <laughs> highlights, uh, highlights the importance of what you guys yeah. are doing right because like personnel is policy yeah. i think i think it even works for like the really establishment members of congress yes. too like like basically all those staffers are like they're liberals yeah. like that's the yeah it, it works basically across yeah. the whole yeah. spectrum it's but, like but the other thing i was gonna say it's not just the you know don't have the toddy can foot and mouth moment you also want to be able to say what you're for right, right. i mean so, so i think like this is also where um, you know, we're in a better moment. Uh, you know, there, it's providential that Dobbs comes out when it does, given that there are um, there's a new willingness on the right um, to consider ways in which we could support working families, ways in which we could support mothers with unplanned pregnancies. And you can talk. I mean, look at what Texas did. Uh, uh, what was it? H uh, was it HB five, HR five. What, what, what was uh, the heartbeat bill? Whatever mm -hmm. the, the 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 lettering for the heartbeat uh, bill was. Prohibits abortion after six weeks. The same session, uh, the legislature allocates, what was it, $100 million for the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program. The media covered the former, mm -hmm. did not cover the latter, at least the national media, right? So most uh, of our listeners might not be familiar with the $100 million that went to the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program. Although they were suddenly covering a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse in, right. in a government program, which is incredibly rare. <laughs> yeah. It, it only happens in, you know, the aid to yeah. the, the alternatives to abortion program. But that's something where you can say, look, I'm going to be supporting um, the child tax credit. I, I believe this is a Tom Cotton bill that it should kick in at conception mm -hmm. rather than at birth. Right. Look, th this is marginal, um, but it can make a difference if sure. for those nine months you're getting some financial assistance to help you make um, you know, you, your time being a pregnant mother that much um you know more feasible uh these are ways in which i think we can speak where we can say my commitment to being pro-life means i'm against lethal violence in the womb it also means i'm in favor of supporting mothers and fathers and families and here are some concrete ways of doing it even mitt romney right the guy who a decade ago mm -hmm. talked about the makers and the takers the 47 percent, the severe conservative he's now introduced um uh, i forget now the acronym for his yeah. but you know his kind of family policy plan, it's getting people at AEI and at EPPC and at the Institute for Family Studies and a variety of other groups across the spectrum to actually say, yeah, like, we support yeah. this. And that's something new that's happening. And that, that's, to my mind, it's providential that you can put these things together. So, so on this, uh, I found myself in a weird position over the past year or so, basically, where I you know, very publicly supportive of all sorts of creative thinking on economic issues on the right. But at the same time, I can't help but get a little bit concerned because 
it feels like, you know, and you have more clarity into this than I do, but, you know, let's say during the Bush years, one of the classic retorts the left would make is that you're not pro-life, you're pro-birth, you're not supportive of any economic policies that actually help families. I want to, I, I, I don't even know if this is necessarily important or valuable, but I want to protect the ability for people to be just anti-killing babies. Yep. That That is okay. That is a perfectly reasonable position <laughs> to hold in and of itself. They don't have to be on board for all my wacky economic ideas. Those should be de- debated on the merits. Right. And so how, how are you thinking about the the, the trade-offs there starting to to uplift this, this set of issues um, into the conversation about life? Because all these national organizations that are very well-funded need something to do. Um, how are you thinking about, you know, are, are we going to start conceding that the left was right and we do right. need to support some level of, of, of economic support for families if we're going to be authentically pro-life or how, how are you thinking about that and, and how are you pitching it to people yeah no i mean so so what we say in the book is we we explicitly say that you know there is not kind of like a um a pro-life litmus test for what sort of family policy uh should you support mm-hmm. that family policy and pro-life policy there's some overlaps and you know insofar as this is a good piece of family policy pro-lifers should want to support it but it's not as if you're not pro-life um unless you support whatever the, you know, kind of like um, most progressive family policy du jour Mm -hmm. is. Because it may very well be the case that you legitimately think that X, Y, and Z piece of family policy is going to do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and and this could be like a a Helen Andrews style argument of it's going to lead more mothers working outside of the home. And, you know, uh, she wants to prioritize uh, mothers being at home caring for their kids. Or you could say it's going to lead to more um, intentional non-marital births because for every additional um, child that you have, you get an additional um, government grant, whatever. I mean, there there are like valid reasons to be concerned on the merits with whatever a given piece of family policy is going to be. My point here is that, you know, as a political matter, right, if you're, you you know, you ask, you know, given, given, giving advice to a candidate, it's much better to be able to say whatever it is that you think mm-hmm. is the proper role of government vis-a-vis family policy mm-hmm. to be able to pair those things like mm-hmm. whatever it is that you do think there's a valid role here um and i do think i am you know i'm not a libertarian like i do think there's a more space for a valid role for government um to assist with family formation um to assist women with unplanned pregnancies um if we are now telling women that um uh you know six months ago you had a supposed, you know, a a declared by the Supreme Court constitutional right to um, abort this child. And now we're saying under law, you need to carry this child to term. What are we willing to do to um, empower that mother to actually fulfill now her legal obligation? She always had a moral obligation there. And I think it needs to be a variety of uh, responses. I mean, I don't want to see public policy that then actually crowds out uh, civil society solutions. I mean, I actually think it would be a problem um, if things like the Texas Alternative to Abortion Program were structured in a way that they put out of business the pregnancy resource centers. And you could see that, you know, we, oh, we just create the government version of the pregnancy resource centers. And to my mind, that would be a mistake. Much better to find ways of supporting Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center, the Northwest Center, uh, Birthright, Loudoun County, like much better to find ways um, of giving them more resources than they can... Mm-hmm work with more women in need mm-hmm. than to create like another government solution, a uh, government program that's, you know, doing it directly. Why? Why? Yeah. Because I think 
almost all of the examples we have of the government run solutions is that they don't actually provide the benefit that we're seeking. Um, and I think there's actually something intangible uh, uh, in, in the sense of this, the interpersonal relationship that could be formed at a pregnancy hill pregnancy center is going to be different than the relationship that's formed at the government uh, run version of that. Mm -hmm. But again, that's not to say there's not a role for the state, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I sense that your follow up question was, oh, no, like Ryan's giving me some like libertarian <laughs> talking point. No, my point is that family policy Conservative family policy should be conservative, mm -hmm. right? Uh, this was a, a piece that Wells King from uh, American Compass and Patrick Brown, uh, my colleague at PBC, wrote recently for Public Discourse, where they're saying, "Look, it's not as if that you know this now means that we have to embrace you know whatever the latest Biden proposal is." Between libertarianism on one hand and then like big government um, liberalism on the other hand, there's a lot of space, and we can think through what, what a conservative way of doing. It. And I think a conservative way of responding says, all right, well, what are the kind of organic institutions of society? Things like families, things like churches, uh, synagogues, other houses of worship, um, parents, teachers, associations, um, the Lions Club, the Knights of Columbus, all of these kind of uh, little platoons. And then how do we actually support those institutions rather than supplant them? Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, uh, he said little platoons. <laughs> I know you don't like that term, but I actually, I mean. No, I, no, I'm just, it's little, all in good faith. Little platoons are good. Um, okay, so. But it's not an either or. I mean, I think the mistake is if you're in favor of little platoons, therefore no government. Yeah. Or if you're in favor of um, a role for the government in assisting family formation and human flourishing, therefore little platoons is a bad word yeah we need like a little platoons fire alarm that like sits on the desk we hit the button the confetti yeah. comes well, from the ceiling it's it's great it's the watchword drink um so okay so <laughs> let's suppose 2024 featured a presidential contest not unlike 2016 you have 17 different flavors of republican right. on stage what in your mind is the gold standard that uh your favorite candidate would be advocating for on the uh, life side, what they'd be saying will be a legislative slash executive like champion proposal of theirs when they get elected. And then on the family policy, policy side, what would correspond to it? When you get to that section of the presidential right. debates where we talk about values issues, which I've always hated, <laughs> uh, what what basic is basic justice yes, <laughs> yeah. is a value? What, what, yeah. what, what's what's the Ryan Anderson registered trademark gold bucket, gold, gold basket of, of policies? Um being as, pro I mean, so it's hard to answer that right now because mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen with the midterm. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say being as bold on the pro-life issue as is elective, electorally feasible. Do you think um, conception I don't, is going to be, is likely to be in that? Probably not at this moment. Okay. Um, and I regret that that's the case, mm -hmm. but um, my sense is that that would probably backfire. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not a strong, uh, if someone were to run on that and it was working, I would be cheering him on yeah. or her on for that matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, 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 a, it, it's a situation in which it's hard at this point because I just think the nature of politics is that it's the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. And we don't right now know what's going to be possible two and a half years from now. Mm -hmm. It may be possible, God willing, um, that, um, you know, I don't know who the leading contender is going to be. You know, maybe it'd be Trump, maybe it'd be DeSantis. Um, you know, I have a friend who thinks it's going to be Nikki Haley, and I think he's crazy. Okay, but you know that's why we're making fun of that guy on the show. But, <laughs> you know, I, 
who knows who's it going to be? You know, yeah. let, let's say it is Nikki Haley. And, you know, and let's say it's possible that you could have a conception bill run with that. And mm-hmm. we should be cheering her on. We should be supporting that. If it's not, and, you know, a heartbeat bill, a six-week bill seems to be the best we can hope for, we should be cheering that. Mm-hmm. If not, if it's a 15-week bill, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, I don't know what that answer is, mm-hmm. right? And, and I and I don't think that's a cop-out. I think that's very much of a, this needs to actually be like a context-dependent um, uh, answer, mm-hmm. and we don't yet know that context. Because a lot could happen between now and then for good or ill. Um, what do you think the landscape for abortion access in the 50 states is likely to look like in 10 years? In 10 years? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I want to be as bold as to say <laughs> it's possible that we'll actually have. I mean, it uh, it depends which day of the week. you. I mean, yeah. there are um, more optimistic and more pessimistic moments. Mm-hmm. Um the honest answer is I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the more pessimistic answer is that it won't look very much different than it looks today, mm-hmm. right? And I think that would, if that ends up happening, mm-hmm. um, it would be deeply tragic, um, and it would be a sign that the various groups working in, you know, more actively in politics rather than on the kind of like theoretical side of things, um, you know, we weren't successful in getting our representatives to Mm -hmm. prioritize the push for life. Mm -hmm. Um, But it could also mean that those of us who are doing the more theoretical side of things weren't successful at persuading people. We actually need both. But that would be the more pessimistic, because I think nothing could change. The more optimistic is, you know, I do think within a 10-year window, it's possible that we have a federal law that would protect abortion after the heartbeat's formed. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see that happening. And if that were to happen, we should all be cheering it on. Yeah. Right? It's, but again, like it's, um, had you asked someone in 2005, right? So right after 04, all of these states passed their marriage amendments. Where do you think gay marriage will be in a decade? <laughs> Is anyone going to say it's going to be legal in all 50 states and we're going to be shutting down Catholic adoption agencies and harassing evangelical yeah. bakers? The answer is no. But I think someone could have. Because unfortunately, they had the cult. I mean, that, the underlying, um, uh, what's the right way of putting this? The underlying um, cultural, social, moral beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors were all cutting in their favor, mm-hmm. right? In terms of demographics, in terms of church attendance, in terms of various sexual behaviors, sexual beliefs, they were all moving in the direction of greater and greater support of two consenting adults should do with their bodies, whatever two consenting adults want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of those same underlying kind of demographic sociological trends are there on the abortion debate and they're not in our favor. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm saying there's also the possibility that, you know, people want to say, oh, well, look, look, millennials and the next generation, they're more pro-life than their parents' generation. And while they were in favor of gay marriage, they're also... Um, uh, more uh, pro-life, right? Simultaneously, like bad on one social issue, good on the other social issue. And I think all that is true in the abstract when you're taking the public opinion survey. But everyone's in favor of, you know, at least one exception for abortion, and that's when it's them. Yeah. Or when it's their girlfriend, or when it's their sister or their daughter. And that's where I, you know, again, 
on a more pessimistic day, I think nothing changes. Things possibly even get worse. Mm-hmm. More optimistic, hopeful day. Um, I do think we could see 10 years from now a heartbeat bill at the federal okay. level. Europe with longer tails seems to me the like likely pessimistic take. You know, by longer tails, I mean, you know, Europe, it's basically like everything's between like eight and 15 weeks in the United States. That's your States. pessimistic take. I mean, I, I think like that, like, well, I think it could be much worse than that. Well, that's what I'm saying is like <laughs> longer tails. So we'll have a couple of states that completely ban it and a couple of states that it's like completely allowed. It's just like longer tails, like, which is basically right. what we have right now. It's like we have Europe with longer tails right now is that we have, well, although like yeah. the, 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 I mean, the center left states are much more polarized to one end our most than the populous states. states have really really bad abortion laws much yeah. worse than europe's mm-hmm. i mean think, think about it this way the mississippi law that was at stake in dobbs was only 15 weeks mm-hmm. which makes it on the progressive side of yeah. the european bell curve and that's seen as you know a huge pro-life victory 93 mm-hmm. percent of all abortions take place before 15 weeks right without a legal limit, right? So mm-hmm. that's just, you know, on the natural, like when do you go to get your abortion? 93% mm-hmm. of the time it's happening before 15 weeks. If you now have a legal, re, you know, limiting principle, the other 7% are just going to say, oh, we got to get it done a little bit earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Some of those 7% are because, you know, things happen. They they get genetic testing later and during the pregnancy or, 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 or there can be other factors at play for why someone mm-hmm. might think they need a later term abortion, not just, well, we didn't schedule it earlier, but many of them will just be scheduled beforehand. Um, so if that's your pessimistic take, I actually think that's optimistic because I, I think we could also continue to see California and New York and Illinois and Massachusetts continue to protect the abortion license throughout all uh, 40 weeks and then nothing happen at the federal level. Yeah. Um, all of that said, I, I get where you were going with the question was that would it really be all of this work for the past 50 years and then adding on your decade of predicting the future, 60 years of the pro-life movement just to end up with Europe? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that would be very depressing if you thought like it was all for that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's the thing is like the induction of the pro-life movement was caused by the constitutional usurpation of the Supreme Court. I mean, there's just not a lot of cases in other countries where a national movement with that much support has come into existence. And so assuming that Americans are slightly different, but not different in kind than any right. other Western country, that seems likely. Now, so likely, I, I think that's what you're actually, yeah, so so yeah. you asked what was the best case scenario, what was the worst case scenario? Yeah. I think what you've described is the likely scenario. Yeah. Well, which is that, <laughs> you know, unfortunately we, we, we arrive at some you know, settlement where it's, you know, for the first trimester, have your abortion, second and third trimesters don't have an abortion. Yeah. And that's what many Europe and, you know, with certain um, exceptions, right? And so many of those European laws do allow second and third trimester abortions for various mm-hmm. um, well-defined reasons in the statutes. Um, to my mind, that would not be a good outcome. Yeah. Right? So neither the most likely outcome nor the worst outcome would be good and that just means there's a lot of work to be done so in uh uh since you first came on this podcast you have uh been at the ethics and public policy center for a year um uh, and change uh what is 
the role that you think the Ethics and Public Policy Center is going to play in these questions in the coming years. Uh, there's a lot of people who used to work at EPC that no longer do, and there's lots of new people who work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. What is what is your vision for the organization? Sure. I mean, so it's interesting. Many of the questions that we talked about uh, this afternoon are not actually um, the type of thing that I uh, uh, focus on kind of a day in, day out, because we are not on the kind of like political side of the spectrum as much as the kind of like intellectual and then the connective tissue. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, we're not doing like the horse racing of, you know, which candidate, which messaging. Um, we're not doing like the fine tuning of, um, of you know, kind of uh, forecasting, you know, should it be 20 or 15 in this moment, given public opinion. We're doing a bigger picture thing of explaining why it is. I mean, so, so the book that Zan and I wrote it titled or subtitled why abortion harms everything and solves nothing mm -hmm. um book that carl truman has written um uh, strange new world the thinkers and activists who created i forget the exact subtitle but he's telling a 500 year trajectory of all of the different kind of thinkers and artists and activists that got us in a situation in which it's a plausible concept that a man could be trapped in a woman's body mm -hmm. i think he opens the book by saying you know, none of my grandparents ever would have given a second thought to the claim that a man could be trapped in a woman's body. And yet today I'm called a bigot because I don't believe it. How did we get here? Right. Um, and so the type of, you know, work that Carl's doing, that we're, it's taking a step back from some of the day to day kind of power politics to think, all right, well, what's the truth about human nature? What's the truth about human flourishing? Um, how can we then document that when we get human nature wrong, there are human costs. And then how can we um, propose what it is that politics should be supporting, mm -hmm. right? And so so it's it's much more, uh, I would say it's it's committed to a sound understanding of, uh, EPPC is committed to a sound understanding of human dignity and human flourishing within the context of a sound understanding of the American political project. Mm -hmm. The reason I say sound understanding is that I think there are ways in which the American political project has um uh, there's been like hagiography surrounding it where it gets simplified just as the second paragraph of the declaration of independence right and all you need to know is kind of like lock second treatise and that second paragraph of uh, the declaration and that's all of the political philosophy you need american political tradition is much more robust right you're going to have various aspects of the common law the natural law yes some enlightenment liberalism is part of the american project but it's not the whole um all right, so when you think about the American political order rightly understood, how do we then promote human flourishing rightly understood? That's what we, you know, we have a host of scholars working on these sorts of issues. Um, you know, whether we have explicit programs in Catholic studies and in evangelicals and civic life, Carl Truman's housed there, Andrew Walker's housed there, Brad Littlejohn housed there. There's lots of debates today about Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Most of them have no idea what Christianity is or what nationalism is, right? It's mm -hmm. a lot of ignorant chatter about that. Those three scholars are working, you know, in many of those debates. The idea being that it's not as much like a Hill office. When I was at Heritage, the focus of Heritage was much more the day in, day out of there's a bill coming up. How should we score it? Are we going to vote for it or against it? You know, we need to do some market testing for polling on what the messaging should be. We're EPPC's, you know, a step back from that of what is it that we should care about in the first place and why? Um, and then how do we best um, 
explain that to people who aren't there yet. Or I think even more importantly, and this is what Zan and I do with the abortion book, is how do we help people who already have glimpses of the right mm -hmm. conclusion better understand why? Like, I actually think a lot of education is not so much um, persuading someone um, to get rid of the bad opinion they hold and to adopt a good opinion, but to take a glimpse of a truth that they hold and help them to see it more clearly and help mm -hmm. them to see it more fully. Um, and so that's where you'll see, I mean, what, what Claire Morrell is doing on big tech questions, what Patrick Brown's doing on family policy questions, uh, what we're doing with the HHS accountability project is, you know, taking questions about human dignity, human flourishing, proposing what that would look like. And then on specific areas of concern, doing some of that application. Yeah. Right. And so we're not doing regulatory work everywhere in HHS, but on some of the big issues of abortion funding, of transgender uh, uh, um, uh, mandates, of various aspects um, of we're still living under various COVID guidelines, which is just mind blowing to think about, um, you know, responding to some of that. Aaron Cariotti has been doing great mm -hmm. work. Um, yeah. As a bioethics guy, did you ever think that a worldwide pandemic would end up being a major part of your docket. <laughs> Not initially. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, like when I, when I first started thinking about moving to EPPC, the pandemic had not yet hit. By the time I accepted the job, you know, I'd been working in my basement for, what was it, eight or nine months at that point, yeah. right? Um, and the fact that some people are still exclusively working in their basement a year and a half after that. So, yeah. if, you know, it's been over two years and they haven't left the basement is problematic. Um, but I mean, so Aaron has a book, uh, um, Aaron Cariotti, coming out next month where he looks at the lessons of COVID for, uh, I think his the title of his book is The New Abnormal, and the subtitle is something like The Rise of the Biosecurity State, where his point is, he's not going to weigh into like this piece of policy versus that piece of policy, but looking at as a whole, what is it that we're entering into um, when we delegate this much um, authority to people with lab uh, white lab coats um, and the government, you know, uh, doing their bidding. And what does that then look like? What's their operating assumptions about human nature and human flourishing and what makes for kind of essential work versus, you know, the rest of us who laptop class, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's the interesting thing about all this is like the people that I know that, you know, are still working in their basement so much later after all this stuff is like, yeah, I just like it. <laughs> uh, I'm just waiting to retire, you know, I, I just want to be well, done. Different, I mean, so I, 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 I should clarify that. I mean, it's one thing to say that what you discovered during the pandemic was that there are actually better ways of integrating your work life with the rest of your life, right? Mm -hmm. I don't like work-life balance because it suggests that your work life isn't part of your life, but like there are better ways of integrating family life with work life and worse ways, right? I mean, I think for some people, exclusively working at home is a worse way of doing it because they never detach from their work and they're always... Um, multitasking, which is to the detriment of both family life and work life. For other people, not having to commute five days a week or not having to work certain hours, but having the flex time of, I'm going to get a bunch of work done from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. And then I'm going to play with the kids until lunchtime. And that, I think for some people, like they learned new lessons, like COVID was a mm -hmm. good kind of reset button. And so that might be why they're working in the basement. What I meant by that was the people who still think that it's unsafe to leave the basement, mm -hmm. right? Because like COVID is, you know, if, if they go to the groceries, like whatever, um, I think some of that is pure theater at mm -hmm. this point. Um, I mean, I forget the judge's name in Florida who struck down 
the mask mandate on the planes. Mm-hmm. Have there been any consequences? Judge Menzel. It was yes, yes. I mean, because she yeah. yes. Um, we have not seen any physical consequences to people no longer yeah. being mandated to wear masks on the airplanes. I think a lot of this was theater. The same way that, you know, every time you take off your shoes, if you don't have pre-check when you go through airport, it's a lot of this is theater. Well, and here's the the interesting thing about that, too, is that, um, you know, aside from the people who have comorbidities or whatever, most of the people who have, like, made this a part of their life, like, about, you know, basically the main thing that they care about, they're all deeply unhappy. (laughs) Like, they need... They need something to like latch onto and be extremely passionate about because they're not good at anything <laughs> and they're ugly. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> um, Ryan, what uh, what should people be coming to EPPC for? I think yeah. you, you, you presented a very compelling vision for what the Institute's going to be doing. Who should seek out you guys and for what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's for people who want to better understand the moment in which we're living in from like a grand historic sweep. Like mm-hmm. the the stuff that I think Truman's doing, Aaron Cariotti, when his book comes out next month, is going to really help people see that it's not just like, well, because the 2020 election went poorly, we're now in 2022 and there's some bad laws, bad policies, bad regulations. There's a larger um, historical arc that explains kind of underlying trajectories Mm -hmm. that are at play. And it's not all just John Locke either, right? I mean, I think it can also be oversimplified as like, you know, John Locke had some bad ideas, liberalism had some bad ideas, and then we get to where we are. Um, There's a, you know, it's a multifaceted um, um, set of factors that are uh, uh, um, contributing to this. And so one is like better understanding why we are here, but then two is better understanding what we can do about it. and, you know, whether this is like we recently put out a um, parent's guide to technology uh, that Claire Morell had worked on with Patrick Brown, with uh, Noel Maring and um, Mary Hassan. And so Claire's in our tech project. Patrick's in our family policy project. Um, Mary Hassan is in our kind of like transgender project. And then Noel Maring's in our theology of home project. And so it was like an interdepartmental um, product that they made because, you know, technology has a huge impact on the transgender uh, phenomenon. Uh, How you allow your children to use technology has a huge impact on what their religious habits are gonna look like. So the Theology of Home Project. And so having, and then the other thing is that like Claire and Patrick's own children are still rather young, whereas Noelle's and Mary, I think all of Mary's kids are now out of the house. Noelle has some college graduates. So they they, they come at this from a different kind of, um, you know, where are we in our own parenting perspective? But what what they did with that guide was just, put forward, you know, here are um, a whole host of tools that you as parents can use to better regulate the use or abuse of technology in your home. A month later, Claire partnered with Brad Wilcox, Gene Twang A, and one other author to do a memo for state policymakers on five things that state policymakers can do to protect kids from technology. Mm-hmm. And so like there, you know, it's a two different, and this is where, you know, you guys don't like the phrase little platoons, but it's, it, but it's a both and. I think it's fine. <laughs> it's, a, it's fine. We just like to make fun of you. You're a dork. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. Guilty as tra- I We mean, all are. It uh-huh. is. But, but what I like about that approach is they want to say, we don't want to wait yeah. for the states to do something. And so right now, if you are a parent, 
here is, you know, I think it's like a 20 page booklet that goes through different filters you can use, different devices. Like some devices are better than others in terms of what your kids can get around, um, et cetera, et cetera. And also like what apps should never be on your child's mm-hmm. devices. A lot of people don't know how bad things like TikTok or Snapchat or other things um, can be. Um, so that's part one. But then part two, state policymakers should be making the life of parents easier, not harder. Here are five different things that state policymakers can do um, to protect kids from the abuses of technology so that it goes in conjunction with what parents are trying to do. Like ideally, you would have each level of society reinforcing each other in promoting human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Right? So the family is being supported by the church, which is being supported by the state, which is being supported by the federal government in a variety of different ways, each within their own proper jurisdiction. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't want the state baptizing babies but I don't want the state making it harder for the priest to be baptizing the baby. Mm-hmm. Or in your case, whoever it is, do you guys even baptize babies? Yeah, <laughs> I do. All right. I'm a Presbyterian. He, he's, a, he's a new I wasn't <laughs> sure what time. Yeah. 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 This is a new thing. I My Southern Baptist <laughs> friends do not baptize yeah, babies. Not, not the- um, This is a whole thing. Not <laughs> the snake charming kind, uh, the other kind. Yeah. Where can people find that guide in particular, it's by all the way? Because so, I'm going to go find it. Yeah, it's, so. uh, it's all on the EPPC website. If you go to- eppc.org um and then for this just go to the tech program and it'll have both the parents guide and it'll have the um proposals for state policymakers like they're both housed there mm-hmm. and we're gonna have a variety of other products like that like short um things on the life issues um on the tech stuff and on the family policy stuff where we're connecting you know we're not doing model legislative draft uh, uh, language um, in, in this case, but you know, what is the proper philosophical vision? And then what are, you know, in this case, five concrete policies uh, mm-hmm. that you can then enact? And how can people follow everything that you are doing? Um, so at EPPC, you'll find all of my like long form writing for my thoughts that don't require more than, what is it now? 280 characters is that, the <laughs> that you can now edit yeah. apparently. Yeah. Oh, I've not so. yet done that, but uh, on Twitter, it's at Ryan T and A N D. So the first three letters of my last name. Not enough characters. <laughs> no, and, and the most recent. So I don't know actually when this will will air. So you might want to you know edit this out right now. But as we're recording this, the uh, the most recent social media posts uh, involve the cow that I got for my birthday yesterday. Very exciting. Um, that we drove uh, to Hot Springs, Virginia, to pick up, and the barn that we just finished building where. The cow will live with the goats and the sheep and the pigs. Does the cow have a name? Not yet. Um, Who uh, will get to determine the name? So I don't. So so the, the people <laughs> we bought it from, yet. they had not <laughs> named the cow because they were going to be you know selling it, so they didn't want to grow attached. Our dog is named Cal, C A L, which is named for my wife's favorite Scotch, which she likes Macallan. Um, she got a dog one, I think it was three years ago for her birthday. She named the dog Cal. Um, and so our kids, you know, at first it was a little confusing because. You know, we'll, we'll say cow, but it's a dog. Now they're very clear. It's a dog. His name is Cal. So I was thinking we could confuse them by calling uh, the cow dog, D A W G. But then it was suggested to me that you know we should just stick with the Scotch thing. My favorite Scotch is Lafrog, uh-huh. and whenever I would say Lafrog, our son would start ribbiting. He thought we were saying frog. Yeah. So I was like, I would just call the cow Frog. Yes. Um, a cow named Frog. That's, great. That's excellent. I got a a new you know twenty one cubic foot chest freezer. So if you ever decide to. <laughs> well, no, no, so, so this is very important. I'll take this a cow. This cow will have a sweet name because she's the mama cow, and we're going to be milking her. Her children, we will be eating. So we have, we have, we have, we have two pigs. Great. We, my wife and I, we gave each other two pigs each. We got four pigs at Christmas time, and the boar 
his name is Gordo. Um, the Sal's name is um, uh, Bella. And then the two babies, one is Ginger Bacon because he's a ginger like you, but in a couple of months he will be bacon. <laughs> the other one is named Scrapple. So the, the animals that we will be one day consuming, we will name appropriately. So the kids know it. This animal, you're going to be friends with the animal, but yeah. you know, a year from now, you'll be eating he this He will animal. be maple bacon. Whereas like, you know, so, you know, maybe, maybe um, whatever we end up naming Mama Cow, maybe the kids will be named T-Bone. Yeah. Yeah. We'll set this up after the show. You're only like 30 minutes away from me. So we can. No, we, 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 we will make this happen. Yeah. We can exchange some, you know, maybe some uh, redacted firearm parts for, you know, so certain parts of an animal. What I would suggest is start slow with easier to manage animals. So we started yeah. with the goats, then we got the chickens, then we got the sheep. That's about then the order the that pigs, we're planning on doing it. Yeah. Then rabbits, then ducks, and now the cow. And so I think all that's left next would be the horse. I mean, so, so we yeah. keep moving in, you know, greater um, size, but also not only size, because obviously like rabbits and chickens are smaller than goats, but like more labor intensive yeah. and, you know, more disease prone, more you know, time consuming yeah. attention. So that's for that's the time advice. being, I'll just get the meat from you. <laughs> well, the, the, it's funny because I, you could probably create all sorts of interesting rankings out of the episodes, of the podcast that we've done, but without a doubt, I'm pretty sure the most consequential episode of the podcast for any of the hosts personal lives was when we went to your home to take. <laughs> oh, you're going to, you're going to dox me right now. Well, okay. because, because Nick went out in the middle of nowhere and bought a house and we'll soon have animals. Yeah. So I'll just, I haven't gotten the chance to tell you this story, so I'll just tell our entire audience. Um, so we, we came out and recorded with you. And then shortly after that was when my wife and I went down to North Carolina and we got married. Um, and we were on our honeymoon in the, in the smoky mountains in Western mm -hmm. North Carolina. Um, and I basically, I said, I've been thinking about like Ryan Anderson's house ever since we were there. Um, we should do that. And also, you know, we should talk to your parents about, um, moving up near us. Mm -hmm. You know, they were living in Raleigh. Um, and so we went back and we sat down with them after our honeymoon and said, this is what we want to do. And they said, cool, let's do it. So they it. sold their house in Raleigh. They're currently looking, um, for, for a house, but yeah, then we bought our house in West Virginia with a couple acres and now we're looking at animals and I'm doing housing projects. So yeah, you, you kind of changed my life. <laughs> so for all the making fun of you, I do, uh, you, you really set me on the right, on the right path there. So, um, well, Ryan, thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule when you come into DC to, to tape with us. And, uh, we hope everyone will check out all the great work that you're doing. Um, and yeah, thank you for everything. You do. Thank you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that extended cut of A Moment of Truth with Ryan. Uh, we always enjoy talking to him. Uh, you know, it's funny, we, we keep on trying to schedule time to see him uh, off camera. Uh, and so we we often do uh, at least some per version of personal catching up on on camera. That happens with a lot of our guests. Uh, these are just our friends that we bring to tape with us. And so uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation. As always, go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything that we're doing here at American Moment. Backlog of this podcast, well over 70 episodes. Episodes at this point, hundreds of hours of content, as well as Amcanon, our coalition of books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and more on everything we believe across these issues. Sometimes I have whiplash because, you know, we'll have this tranche of uh, some social conservative family policy episodes. Before that, there was a bunch of foreign policy stuff. Sometimes it's immigration. We just, we, 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 
we believe in lots of crazy things about everything. And so we, we tape podcasts about it. Uh, we're really excited for everything that we have cooking in the fall, preparing for all the change that's going to happen in Washington this year. And so we'll hope that you'll come along for the ride by following us, sign up for the mailing list, rate and review this podcast five stars. And thank you guys as always for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.